This is the podcast, Surgery IC Rounds. My name is Jeff Guy. I'm an Associate Professor of Surgery at Vanderbilt University Medical Center and Director of the Regional Burn Center. We've had a small hiatus uh, from some of our uh, podcasts, um, due mostly to the summertime. I've been pretty active, have five kids, so a lot of times life happens and I'm uh, not able to produce podcasts on a regular basis, but hopefully as uh, summer winds down, we'll get back into the swing of things. One of the things that I would like to talk about starting today are, are some of the um, um, newer ideas or perhaps some controversial issues regarding uh, ventilator strategies, particularly lung ventilation uh, strategies and things that come up frequently on rounds this time of year. Uh, and that is what is um, um, uh, positive pressure ventilation and lung protective strategies. As we've mentioned before in, in, in other podcasts, that positive pressure ventilation is really a, a pretty significant um, alteration in normal physiology in the way that we typically breathe. We breathe by negative inspiratory respirations in, in a normal setting. We lower the uh, pressure inside our thorax and air is drawn from an um, uh, ambient pressure environment to a lower pressure environment into our thorax. When we place somebody on a ventilator, we are pushing air into their lungs, and it's really re- represents a 180 degree alteration in the normal physiology. And in doing so with just uh, absolute disregard uh, to what we're doing, we can actually uh, injure the patient uh, through our attempt to treat the patient. And in some cases, the treatment may be worse than the disease. And the lung may be injured by the positive pressure ventilation through a variety of different mechanisms. This type of injury is known as ventilator-induced lung injury, which you may see uh, sometimes abbreviated as VILI. One mechanism by which over distension of uh, uh, is over distension of the lung when the uh, lung units or alveoli are physically stretched beyond their normal maximums. We typically see this described as when the end inspiratory uh, pressures or transpulmonary pressures uh, exceed the, the maximum of 30 to 35 centimeters of water. Now this requires some thought on part of the uh, uh, clinician in that just because the uh, 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 display on the ventilator says 30 to 35 centimeters of water pressure, that does not particularly mean that that is the transpulmonary pressure. Now this may be the case particularly in somebody who has decreased thoracic compliance, uh, such as a patient who's received a lot of uh, volume resuscitation, a person with circumferential chest wall burns, uh, people who may have rib fractures, people who have abdominal distension. Uh, The peak inspiratory pressure on the ventilator may actually read 30 to 35, but that is not, in those particular cases, an accurate prediction of what the patient's transpulmonary pressures are. And in my opinion, it's a little bit more of an advanced critical care concept, uh, and uh, uh, you really, when you're getting into that kind of area, you really need to be consulting the uh, intensivist. But this over-distension of lung units is what we typically think of when we think of this ventilator-induced lung injury. But what we often uh, ignore is what happens when we are repetitively opening and closing lung units. And this rapid opening and closing uh, can uh, subject the uh, lung units or the alveoli to sheer stress. The example that I'll often make to this is imagine taking the new balloon out of a, a bag of balloons and you try to blow it up and you initially have to kind of work very hard to kind of get that um, uh, balloon open. This is what we see when we allow lung units to collapse. That, that slamming shut and reopening uh, of lung units actually can 
produce a ventilator-induced lung injury without actually exceeding the uh, magical numbers of a peak instrument pressure of 30 to 35 centimeters of water pressure. There may also be some tidal stretch injury that occurs with repetitive use of tidal volumes above the normal to 5 to 6 cc's per kilo, although this mechanism is more controversial. When we, when we look at the ARDS net data, some of the uh, studies that are interesting is that they looked at a high tidal volume group there of say 12 cc's per kilo and they looked at a lower uh, 5 to 6 cc's per kilo. It was interesting that in the lower tidal volume group the oxygenation wasn't as good as the higher tidal volume group but the survival in the lower tidal volume group was. So what this may, uh, one of the lessons to be learned there is that early on in the care of the patient we have to recognize that we might be better off accepting a lower level of oxygenation with a PO2 perhaps of 60 uh, at a lower tidal volume of ventilation rather than being happy with the uh, PO2 of 100 or 120 that we may get with a higher, higher tidal volume ventilation, but recognizing the fact that the lower oxygenation, the lower tidal volume ventilation has a significant improvement in outcomes whether your patient will live or die. Now, going back to this talk about tidal stretch injury, is that when we have lung units that are collapsed and we give a tidal cycle um, uh, to an uh, individual, the, um, the tidal cycle or the volume of gas that we uh, inflate into the lungs may not be able to distend those collapsed alveoli. So what it does is it over-distends the normal alveoli, even though we may be at a tidal volume of 5 to 6 cc's per kilo, even though we may have a peak insertory pressure of 30 to 35 uh, centimeters of water. Therefore, these injuries occur predominantly in the healthier regions of the lung, which receive really a bulk of the mechanical ventilatory support. Uh, also, the uh, shear stress that we've talked about occurs in healthier regions that are immediately adjacent to the sicker regions. And therefore, some of the um, uh, challenges of uh, uh, providing patients with positive pressure ventilation is to ventilate the patient to pr provide an adequate level of oxygenation, an adequate level of ventilation, but not injure the patient in making the situation worse by our method of mechanical ventilation. Now, it has been uh, well disseminated and indoctrinated in most that the use of smaller tidal volumes at 6 cc's per kilo um, produces plateau airway pressures of less than 30 to 35 centimeters of pressure. And this is clearly the standard of care in taking care of patients who have acute lung injury and ARDS. However, this should not be our approach just limited to patients who have acute lung injury and ARDS because if we are taking care of a patient who has a traumatic brain injury and has normal lungs or if, say they have uh, some sort of uh, a cervical spine injury or they've got an airway obstruction, something that they are on the mechanical ventilator, perhaps an altered metal status or an airway obstruction, but not any primary lung parenchymal uh, injury or disease, the method by which we can ventilate the patient may aggravate the uh, ventilator-induced lung injury. Uh, simplifying that is that we need to be mindful that if we over-distend um, these uh, lung units, these alveoli, if we're using too high of plateau pressures or too high of tidal volumes, that we are going to induce a, a state of uh, lung injury or perhaps even ARDS. There was a large observational study done at the Mayo Clinic, and this showed that a policy of small tidal volume ventilation in virtually everyone at that institution resulted in marked reductions of acute lung injury and ARDS developing in patients receiving positive pressure ventilation for reasons other than ARDS. 
Now, turning some of our attention to PEEP, it seems that with all of the um, great information that we've gotten in this current strategy that we subscribe to, small tidal volume ventilation, keeping our peak inspiratory pressures down, our, our plateau pressures down, we've kind of overglossed the idea of the importance of PEEP. When I was a fellow, we used to run PEEP at very high levels. Uh, uh, 20, 25 was not unusual. We didn't pay much attention to the peak inspiratory pressure. But with all the focus on maintaining low plateau pressures and low total volumes, I think we've overglossed the importance of PEEP, and perhaps we need to go back and looking at that because PEEP is perhaps more important now than it has been uh, in the past. Now, there's been several studies that have focused on the question of whether in the setting of small tidal volume ventilation that attempts to minimize shear stress um, and uh, um, from the open and close injury of uh, lung units uh, falling closed and then having to be snapped back open, that uh, what is perhaps the best method of PEEP to use, either aggressive or conservative PEEP, and uh, which one of those two, aggressive PEEP or conservative PEEP, will further reduce ventilator-induced lung injury and improve outcomes in these patients. If you're not visualizing this, imagine a lung unit uh, being, if you just take your two hands and just try to make a, a ball, put your fingertips to fingertip to fingertip and, and kind of make a ball, and then when that ball re represents an alveolus, when you allow and you push your palms together, and that is your collapsed alveolus, and if but during expiratory phase of ventilation you allow that alveolus to collapse, then you have to go back to that image of that collapsed balloon, and you have to push real hard to try to open up that balloon, that snapping open and snapping close of that lung unit is that injurious uh, to the lung. And certainly uh, the research and, and the evidence supports that. So by maintaining an open lung strategy, by maintaining PEEP and preventing those units from closing and snapping open and snapping shut, that we're reducing some of the uh, shear stress to that healthy unit of lung in a overall diseased lung. Okay, so we have to protect, we have a diseased lung. Uh, and the ARDS, as we've talked about before and we've learned from the studies of Gatnani uh, and all of his predecessors, ARDS is a heterogeneous disease. That there are areas of the lungs that are more severely affected than other areas. And some of the areas of the lung are frankly normal. And if we ventilate the patient improperly and we damage the normal lung, how on earth do we protect? How, do, how on earth do we plan on supporting the patient, let alone allowing the patient to get better? The argument for aggressive PEEP is that atelectasis is further reduced. Now, the argument on the other side for conservative PEEP is that the additional atelectasis reduction is not worth the accompanying increase that one may have with plateau pressures. Looking back at the ARDS network trial, when they addressed this issue, they showed better gas exchange and mechanics with aggressive PEEP. This strategy had no effect on ventilator-free uh, days or mortality. So overall, the outcome wasn't changed. We live, die, length of stay on the ventilator, uh, whether low PEEP or less PEEP. But the actual argument that mechanics would be worsened didn't hold water, that just while mechanics were actually improved. Now, two other recent large trials using small tidal volume strategies, one from Canada and one from Europe, have only been reported in abstract form, but also show improved mechanics and blood gases with aggressive PEEP and no effect on mortality. Again, showing uh, improved oxygenation, but no improvement in live-die. Thus, the decision to use aggressive versus conservative PEEP in the setting of low tidal volume mechanical ventilation rests on the clinician's judgment on the value of uh, physiological improvements without an associated mortality benefit. 
but you may have to pay the cost of dealing with higher plateau pressures. Two novel positive pressure ventilation strategies that have been proposed as lung protective for patients with severe oxygenation failure are airway uh, pressure release ventilation, which is APRV, and high-frequency ventilation. Contrary to what people think, APRV is not a new mode of mechanical ventilation. It's a mode of ventilation that has uh, been around uh, for the se- since the 70s. Uh, if you uh, are into critical care, you should certainly have a, uh, t- a copy of Tobin's textbook on mechanical ventilation, and they um, reference the fact that it is not a new mode of mechanical ventilation. Uh, if you know what APRV is and you look at waveforms, you say, oh, this is just like pressure control inverse ratio ventilation. It is not. APRV is a spontaneous mode of ventilation where the patient can breathe spontaneously. It's basically CPAP with periods of interruption, and we've talked about this in other podcasts, and I would certainly refer you to those for a greater detailed um, explanation. And then there's high-frequency ventilation, uh, probably the most uh, commonly used uh, high-frequency mode of ventilation. People may think of jet ventilation. That's not very commonly used um, outside of an operating room nowadays, uh, but the uh, oscillator, high-frequency oscillatory ventilation, uh, great mode of ventilation, used a lot in pediatrics, a little bit more difficult to do uh, in adults because the amount of displacement that's required and just the ability to keep the, the ventilators cooled. Uh, and then what we use a lot in burn patients, particularly in the burn unit of Vanderbilt, something called high-frequency percussive ventilation. Uh, but again, a, a mode of high, it's not really a, a mode of high-frequency, I would refer to it more as a hybrid mode of high-frequency ventilation. Now, APRV uses a long uh, inflation period with superimposed spontaneous breathing. Okay, now that's the key thing. A long inflation period with superimposed spontaneous breathing. It's a fancy way of really saying CPAP. And CPAP, if you don't know what CPAP is, that's continuous positive airway pressure. How would I mimic CPAP? Have somebody drive an automobile, stick your head out the window. Right? You're getting pressure. You're getting continuous positive airway pressure by sticking your head out the window while you're driving 40 miles an hour. I don't recommend you do this. Okay? Um, but this is physiologically very equivalent. Now, you pull your head into the car for 0.4 or 0.5 seconds. And then you stick your head right back out the window at the same velocity, same airway pressure. That's basically what APRV is. And the people say, well, you cannot breathe spontaneously like that. Well, Put them in your car and start driving down the highway because you can breathe in. That's one of the beauties of APRV. APRV is an alternative to tidal volume and PEEP to raise mean airway pressures. Now, high frequency uses very small tidal volumes and rapid breathing frequencies up to about 900 breaths per minute. Now, gas transport is by non-convective flow with high-frequency ventilation, and substantial mean airway pressures can be uh, provided with very small tidal distensions. Now, what does all that mean in regards to high-frequency ventilation? Just because you have oxygen in an alveolus does not mean that the uh, uh, oxygen is entering into the blood. Oxygen actually has to make a collision with the blood gas membrane uh, in order to oxygenate the blood. Those of you who have ever done a a brain death assessment of a patient who's got uh, brain trauma, well, how do you do that? You put the patient on what? CPAP. You draw a baseline blood gas. You watch the patient that they don't breathe. And over a period of 15 or 20 minutes, you draw a blood gas and their PCO2 has risen a certain level. But meanwhile, their saturation has remained uh, in the, above, say, 92%. Well, how is it that their 
their PO2 remain relatively constant, but their carbon dioxide and their, their partial pressure of carbon dioxide and their blood goes up. Well, it's because those two gases really work by two different mechanisms. You oxygenate really by diffusement or a non-convective movement of gas. But to ventilate, to get rid of carbon dioxide, you have to... <sighs> large movements of gas in and out of the lung and that's referred to as a convective movement of gas and this is one of the nice things that you can do with oxygenation is how can I improve someone's oxygenation okay again think of uh, what I'll typically do is uh, I'll have a I'll be in an ICU room and there's glass doors and the rest of the the, the room has just regular walls to it and if you close those glass doors to a certain degree I have to if I'm an oxygen molecule, I've got to collide with that glass door in order to create transfer of oxygen from the alveoles into the blood. Now, I need to create more of those collisions. So what can I do? Well, I can put more oxygen in the room. I can put more people in the room and start running them into that, that glass wall, which is our blood gas membrane, and create greater uh, magnitude of oxygenation. That's one thing I could do. The other thing I can do is I can make the people, give them a bunch of breakfast cereal, um, and like my kids, they can be flying around a Mach 1 in that room, and just by the fact that they're running around so fast, they're having more collisions with the blood gas membrane or that glass wall. Um, and that will improve oxygenation. I can make the glass wall larger. If it's sliding glass doors, I can say I can close them. Now I've got a, a greater surface for which oxygen molecules or individuals pretending they're oxygen molecules can bump into that glass wall. Well, what are some of the things that will do that? Well, one of them is increasing your functional residual capacity. Uh, and that's one of the ideas behind PEEP. PEEP maintains FRC, and therefore we can have greater uh, surface area uh, in which to have oxygen collisions. Now, if we go back to the idea of oxygen running around like kids on breakfast cereal, well, how could we do that? Well, you could heat the gas, right? As we heat the gas, we increase the kinetic energy uh, and the movement of a gas. That's the basic gas laws we all learned in high school. Well, that's not practical. You can't really raise the temperature of the gases to the point to make it clinically significant and be safe for the patient. But you can use high-frequency ventilation. And by using high-frequency ventilation, we're actually increasing the kinetic energy of the uh, oxygen molecules. And by doing so, we're increasing the number of collisions with the blood gas membrane at a lower concentration of oxygen. And this is one of the concepts behind high-frequency uh, oscillation ventilation as well as high-frequency percussive ventilation. High-frequency percussive ventilation is quite a bit different than oscillatory ventilation. And that oscillatory ventilation has kind of an active uh, in-out movement of gas, but um, a high-frequency percussive ventilation uses a high-frequency carrier on top of a pressure control mode of ventilation. Perhaps a little bit more when we want to get into this particular podcast. Two randomized control uh, uh, trials several years ago evaluated APRV, and one showed a benefit, but with a serious flawed control group uh, in that study uh, using APRV, and the other group uh, showed comparable outcomes of APRV compared to conventional ventilation. It must be remembered that end inspiratory lung volume and APRV is the sum of both the ventilator-delivered inflation plus the spontaneous inflations. And again, we talk about this uh, in the other podcast, that APRV, since it brings down its peep to zero, it actually relies a lot on auto peep. That is a uh, brief introduction on some of the newer concepts in mechanical ventilation. Um, 
We will continue this podcast, um, and we'll talk a little bit about patient-ventilator interactions, uh, which are um, real important, uh, because I think a lot of people, when they're running ventilators, think they're playing a, a piano or a trumpet, where you push a key and get a particular effect. And I would tell you that um, driving a ventilator is much like playing a violin. It's much more uh, fine-tuning uh, uh, by an ear. It's not a, um, an ordinal pushing a button, get a result, that we have to focus a lot on patient ventilator interactions, and that'll be the topic of the next podcast. You've been listening to the podcast Surgery IC Rounds. My name is Jeff Guy. Thanks for downloading and thanks for listening.